1: Hello! Hello! Welcome back. Welcome to episode 12. Episode 12. What are we doing today? Today
0: we are talking about the royals on tour in India.
1: It's our favorite subject, the royal family.
0: The royal family. We love the royal family. Um, Certainly we love the royal family for giving us a lot of material for our podcast. Long may it continue.
1: Yes. Sort of.
0: (laughs) What's interesting... Um, About the royals at the moment is they're on tour in India, which is um, a place that both of us study, work on, live in, have family in. Um, India is, is, well, it comes up um, on the podcast.
1: We've we've done multiple episodes on India. Um, In this particular instance, it is William and Kate who have been traveling through India. Um, they were in the northeast when there was a, an earthquake in Myanmar and um, that led to news about how they're safe, even though they were in an earthquake. Then they went to the Taj Mahal, which is what we we'll mainly focus on today.
0: Yes, they did go to the Taj Mahal. Whenever the Royals go on tour, and I think specifically William and Kate, because they they do a very interesting thing. They create a very particular package of images and sound clips and video clips and stories about the activities that they do, the people that they meet, the places that they go see and the places that they are photographed in. And they put it all together to create a sort of narrative about their experience and time spent in this particular place and they're very good
1: at that they're, they're excellent very good at putting that narrative together. they're
0: excellent at mm. it and and weirdly they're really excellent when they're not on formal tour yes. at putting together a, a packaged image of their yes. family time yes. um, their time away yeah. when they're not working
1: yeah.
0: which you know makes them seem relatable yeah. but it also makes it seem like they're working
1: yeah i was about to say is it weird of me to put scare quotes around working
0: working they're doing yeah, their jobs say,
1: yeah. Does no, I
0: have a So the queen doesn't have a passport. No. But William had, presumably has a passport. Do they all not have passports? I don't know. I feel like so the head of state she doesn't need a passport because no. she's the embodiment no, of diplomacy. If she had
1: like a five uh, a stamp, then she could just show that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's ID. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but does does William have a pass? I mean, I've always wondered this. Does Charles have a passport? I think so. At what point do you not need... Is it when you are the monarch? When you become the monarch, they take it away from you, I guess. That
1: you don't need yes. one. Yeah. But, I mean, it's... You gain a crown and lose a passport. Perhaps. Yeah. But I don't know. Yes. It,
0: it's a question. I mean, we've talked about Border Patrol yes. and we'll talk about Border Patrol again
1: yes,
0: probably next yes. week. Um, but, yeah, the, so they go they go on tour. It, it, in a sense, it's sort of... It's this... this writing a fine line between making it seem too close to the the monarch going out and visiting all the colonial you know realms the the empire versus um you know a more popular narrative now of partnership one of the commonwealth they're rejecting some of those old colonial tropes but then at the same time they're very much holding on to some of those tropes as yeah, well. Yeah, and the
1: need to hold on, because part of, part of what they are recreating in this package narrative is a narrative of British aristocratic presence in India. So, you know, there's a narrative of the Delhi Daba, there's a narrative of various viceregal ceremonies and investitures and various princes and, and whatever visiting. So the visuals of members of royalty, members of British royalty specifically, out there in the in what used to be the colonies builds on a lot of the colonial tropes from before independence.
0: Yes. It's interesting, given the monarchy's somewhat contentious role back home as well, there's sort of a a strange appealing to the rest of the world Mm. to legitimize the monarchy's position back in Britain to say, hey, look, the rest of the world values our cultural
1: And also legitimizing Britain's position in the rest of the world. Yeah. Britain as a post-imperial country, supposedly, is not necessarily completely confident about its position in the world, Um, its position vis-a-vis more powerful allies stroke neighbours, stroke enemies. Um, So... A referendum is coming up in Britain as to whether whether or not Britain should be part of of the EU. We will discuss that, I am sure, um, in other episodes. Uh, Britain is not particularly confident about its relationship with America, um, its principal ally, special relationship, friendship. Um,
0: another important visit. Another important happening visit right now. The same
1: time where Barack Obama and Michelle Obama in Windsor as we speak. Um, they they've been visiting the Queen and. Had photos taken and you have this this odd sense in which they're sort of sort of equals but not quite and that sort of equals but not quite narrative suits both sides so so Britain is somehow legitimizing its royal family by bringing them into contact with the US president but also insisting on the superiority of the of the British royal family as royal and um, and it also suits Obama as the president of a nation, which is still far too obsessed with the British royal family, I think, um, to be part of, to be touched by that royalty.
0: Yes, it's interesting. I mean, how does this work in India? I mean, you've so that we're going to talk a lot about the the royals' visit to the Taj Mahal, the photograph that they released of William and and Catherine. She she prefers to be called Catherine. She well, doesn't Kate like the nickname Kate. Yes. <laughs>
1: I think we should continue to collocate.
0: Okay. Small forms of resistance. Yes. <laughs> but they, so the, the image of them, if you haven't seen it, um, can't believe that you haven't seen it, but if you haven't, we'll post a link to it, um, of them sitting on the stone bench in front of the Taj Mahal in the gardens. The other image that I love that you shared with me and that your mom, your mom told, told you about this um, is that the bench was too, too hot for them to sit on, particularly for Kate right, because she's got bare legs.
1: It is 41 degrees there now.
0: It's warm, and the bench is in the sun, and there's an image of a member, an Indian member of staff cooling down the bench for them to sit on to pose for their photograph. Um, I mean, I, I would love to have such service, but it would also make me feel deeply uncomfortable, yes. given the power relations yes. between...
1: But I guess if you are part of the royal family, then you are used to having people run after you, do things for you,
0: make benches make cooler bench so cooler. your butt doesn't burn. You know,
1: clear up all of Taj Mahal. The, the, yeah, there, there were no other visitors there for that day.
0: Yeah, which was so my mom's thing. observation because my my mom said no one gets to have a photograph of just themselves and the Taj Mahal. Yeah. No one. That's that's you know, yeah. how much money must that have cost? Yes. My mom being as pragmatic as possible.
1: Uh, but, I mean, it matters. It matters in terms of what the economic impact of the royal family's presence in, in India and Indian presence in Britain as well. So, the, you know, nothing was made of this, this connection in the media that I know of. But this is happening in the context of a large number of British steel plants closing down which are owned by an Indian company, Tata Steel. So Tata Steel bought out British steel factories and they're now closing down because Tata thinks they're not profitable enough. So the colonial relationship is still very much there, but the economics of that relationship are slightly blurrier than there once was. And it is in that blurriness that the royal family are trying to situate themselves as representatives of Britain and Britishness and British industry and British commerce and so on. Um, so the the photo you referred to is recreating a, an earlier famous photo of Princess Diana sitting by herself on a bench in front of Taj Mahal, which is a, a photograph that sort of unofficially confirmed to the world the fact that their marriage wasn't working out, and that Diana would soon would soon no longer be part of a royal family, and therefore would soon no longer have the representative role, representative of the nation, that she did at that point. And William was on record describing this trip as an as an attempt to rewrite those memories, uh, very carefully positioning his family's relationship to to the Taj Mahal, and therefore his family's relationship to Indian history as something that is personal to him. So Indian history in this narrative becomes part of his and his family's story. Their personal ownership, could we say?
0: Yeah, claim to. Yeah. It goes beyond um, ownership in a kind of property sense, I think, because the the royal family in, in particular is strangely symbolic. Um, you know, they're... Their bodies themselves yeah. and the images and and their their voices the way that they use language and you know everything about them embodies yeah. something that is you know it goes beyond economic relations yeah. mm. um, which is you know how they justify mm. their continued
1: yeah. salary yeah i mean there's a there's a huge amount of both personal and national nostalgia here on the part of Britain as a post-imperial nation. So, British nostalgia for a time when Britain could call India its own. So, when uh, William goes to to the Taj Mahal, he releases a statement about how he is very grateful to people who uh, constantly uh, preserve his mother's memory by visiting the place she went. As if all the all the tourists going to the Taj Mahal are only going there because Princess Diana once visited there.
0: Um, yeah, as if there, the Taj Mahal was not a historical site of, yes. of of cultural and economic and religious significance to India before the '90s.
1: Yes, and before British presence in India, and independent of British presence in India.
0: Which is, I mean, and and the, you know the. The, the legacies of the royal family and, and the empire are, of course, very fascinating. But, you know, one really simple, simple connection that I'm making as we're talking is Prince William named his son, George, after his uncle, Louis Mountbatten, who is responsible for the partition of the subcontinent. Um, George, one of his many names is Louis, and he is named for Mountbatten. And so the, the, the royal yes. family's legacy yes. in the subcontinent is a very divisive one. Yes. Um, and, and photographs and images of Kate bottle-feeding a rhino or you know whatever yeah. it was that she was doing are at once serving to justify that history, yeah. but also to mask it. Yes. To say that it didn't actually happen that yeah. way let's forget that that's yeah. that that's how it happened and let's yeah. instead think of it as being this other more benign encounter of of yeah. cultural exchange and
1: which is not dissimilar to the narrative you have in India and that that is that is fascinating to me as well because the narrative generally you have in India is a narrative of post conflict reconciliation where the history was troubled and the history was difficult blah 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 but we've all gone past that and India is now a global economic superpower apparently and therefore the encounter between the British royal family and India can almost be at a level of equals except of course it's not and it, it is not for a whole host of reasons including financial and racial and, and so on but there is a, a lingering postcolonial attachment to Britain in the almost wishful thinking that the encounter could be between equals.
0: A language of partnership.
1: A language of partnership becomes aspirational.
0: Yeah. It's interesting as, as you're speaking about this, the Queen went to Ireland recently and it was the first time since Irish independence that, um, a British monarch has visited Ireland. Um, and let's be real, it's been mostly her the whole time. Yes. Uh, but th- the language of the Queen's visit was, was different mm. in Ireland. Um, there was a, almost a sadness yeah. about the Queen's visit to Ireland in the sense that the, the royal family couldn't construct a narrative
1: to overshadow the troubles, I, I think that's fascinating, and, and I think that is not that dissimilar to the case of India. I think what is dissimilar is that this visit is William and Kate, and not the Queen. Yeah, both generationally, photogenically, <laughs> um, those two are very linguistically different as linguistically. As well. So I remember, I, I don't remember which year it was, but on one of the Queen's visits to to India, there was a lot made about the fact that whether or not she would go to Amritsar, Mm -hmm. and specifically whether or not she would say say sorry for the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre. Um, British, one of the many, many British uh, attacks on Indians and India.
0: Yeah, Amritsar is a a city in the Punjab, um, very important, significant city for the Sikh faith and for Sikh tradition. um, 1919. April, in fact, almost to this day. day. Um, General Dyer, a general in the British Army, had his troops open fire on a crowd of peacefully gathered families who had gathered together to discuss um, political agitation, nonviolent agitation, in a walled garden. So they were blocked in, they were trapped, and the exits were blocked. Um, That has been, that event has become extremely significant in the minds of many, many Indians and many, many Sikhs, both who live in India and who live in diaspora outside of India. Um, and it has become a, a symbol of British violence and aggression towards Indians. And David Cameron, a few years ago, also visited Amritsar. He visited the Golden Temple, and there's many photographs. And he refused to apologize. Yes. He was asked point blank if he would, and he said no. Yeah. As you say, there's something different about William and Kate yeah. visiting the Taj
1: Mahal. Yes. In, in other words, they are not, or he specifically is not yet head of state. And therefore, he is distinct to that degree from, from the, the centre of power. And also, generationally, there's a difference. I think, I think um, the, the the generational difference between the Queen as a 90-year-old woman makes her much closer in time to these events that are that are still very painful.
0: Yeah, she is contemporary yeah. to them. Yes. There's also, it's not yet William's responsibility yes. to make a call on whether or not the British yes. state yes. is going to apologize.
1: I think that's right, though what is interesting is, um, even though the, it, this wasn't a visit by the Queen, like all royal visits, it did reopen certain questions. Yes. Um, And the thing I'm thinking specifically about is the Kohino diamond.
0: The diamond. The
1: diamond, which always comes up. Yeah. Uh, and it is, along with the perhaps more famous case of the Elgin Marbles, is another example of, of a thing that Britain stole.
0: Stole, you stole, know. Stole, acquired. There's... There's stories yes. about well, whether or not stealing is the the yes. right term. Yes. So, you know, we'll put it in yes. scare quotes. Yes. For now. Yes.
1: Um, Can uh, you
0: ta- talk more about the diamond? Because I think, unlike the marbles, the Kohinoor diamond is l- is less familiar.
1: So the Kohinoor diamond has a very very complicated history. It it was owned at various times by various um, royal. Families, royal lineages. Uh, there is a Persian connection, which which uh, is part of the diamond's history. But the most immediate history is that the diamond was part of the Sikh Empire, which was based in Lahore, uh, established uh, most famously by Maharaja Ranjit Singh.
0: Around what time? Early nineteenth. Early nineteenth
1: century. Yes. In 1849, there was the the Treaty of Lahore. By this time, Maharaja Ranjit Singh has. Passed away. There's a power vacuum after he dies, uh, leading to uh, multiple quick successions. Various various sons, various family people take the throne over, uh, and and are then assassinated. There's sort of a civil war le- after his his death.
0: There's also British military attempts to take over the Absolutely. territory of the Sikh Empire.
1: Absolutely. At this point, in 1848, 1849, the the Person on the throne is is Maharaja Duleep Singh, who's the the boy king. How old is he? He is eight, seven I think or eight. seven or eight. Um, and the British takeover stroke have a deal treaty with, which is the Treaty of Lahore, which is a, an instrument of annexation. So the British annex the state of Punjab through that treaty, um, and. As part of that treaty, they claim, are given, um, take, again, all of these various verbs have their own political meanings, uh, some of which we will discuss. They get this diamond, the the Kohino diamond.
0: Along with a bunch of other Along with a
1: lo- uh, pieces of jewelry a bunch and precious. Of lots of other stuff. There is a catalogue, which the Singh there's so much more to be said about the singh uh, which we won't have time to do today uh but the Singh goes is taken to britain he goes on grows up to be a uh, a british indian aristocrat um and then eventually uh tries to form a rebellion against against queen victoria and one of the things the Singh does is to publish a catalogue an auction catalogue of some of the things that that the british sold uh that that things that that were were his. So the Kohinoor diamond is just the most famous in a in a whole whole uh, host of things.
0: Where is it now?
1: So the Kohinoor diamond now is the, I think you described it as the Juliest jeweliest, jeweliest the, crowniest.
0: Yeah, the crowniest, juiliest, crowniest jeweliest of the thing. crown jewels.
1: It's in the crown jewels. It's in the Tower of London.
0: It's in the Queen Mother's crown. Yes. At yes. the top. Yes. It is the 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 pride and joy yes. of the Queen Mother's crown, yes. and it is still there. In the Tower of London. Yes,
1: if you pay your, I think it's 40 quid, 40 pounds, something like that, to go and see the Tower of London now. So if you pay your money, you can go and have a look. Very few people do.
0: Very few British people people do. Yes, because we. It's very expensive. Expensive. Charge you to see your own diamond. Yeah,
1: well. (laughs) Your own diamond, in (laughs) scare quotes. Um, So every time you have a. A royal visit to India, or every time you have a prime ministerial visit to India, every time you have any kind of British Indian connection at a governmental level, or at a state level, uh, the questions that always come up are questions to do with apologies for for, for the British Empire, um, which are are constant. The demand is constantly there, but it is never met because, like like an apology for slavery, it would open up the possibility of reparations which no government is going to want to consider and along with this this possibility of or demand for apology and reparation the other demand that constantly comes up is the demand for the repatriation of the diamond in other words india believes that the diamond shouldn't be in britain because it is not british and india wants the diamond for itself of course it this is all complicated by the fact that the 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 place in india where the diamond sort of its last known location, as it were, is Lahore, which, which is, is no longer now in India, is in Pakistan. And the...
0: Can you imagine the Daily Mail headline the day that the royal family and the British government agree yes. to send the diamond home to Lahore?
1: Yes. Can you...
0: <laughs> just the the stream of of racist yes. nonsense we would hear. Yes.
1: Because, you know in india the the relationship between britain and india is much smoother and less complicated than the relationship between britain and, and pakistan because it is bound up with a, with a lot of lot more overt islamophobia so india can be more easily orientalized if you go way back to our first episode uh, india can be more overtly more easily orientalized as the beautiful exotic erotic Hindu. Colorful Hindu space, where Pakistan is much more troubled, and the 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 Islamic nature of Pakistan is much harder to accommodate in a post nine eleven world.
0: Yes. What's interesting too, I mean, if if the government were to give the diamond to India, you know, it it's likely that Pakistan would make a claim for it as yes. well, um, and that there's. Very serious questions about whose diamond is it if India and Pakistan didn't exist until 1947. Yes, um, which of course is the argument that British scholars and commentators use when they say, you know, leave the the symbolic nature, the significance to one side, and just think practically, because we're all just thinking practically yes. here, and. There are these practical concerns: where would the diamond go? Who would it go to? Whose is it really? Um, y- you know where.
1: And and also the so Andrew Whitehead, who's a, a journalist and scholar and has written about partition among other things, wrote a, an op-ed piece for the Indian media outlet NDTV, in which he makes this point: uh, the practicalities. As well as a, a slightly more problematic point, he discussed how convincing Britain's claim was over the Kohinoor diamond. Part of the point he is making is that there are other things that Britain has which is less easy to justify than the Kohinoor diamond.
0: Specifically?
1: Specifically the Elgin marbles.
0: The Elgin marbles being the, the friezes and sculptures off of the face of the Parthenon that Lord Elgin... Acquired
1: stole within quote marks.
0: And brought back to the UK and are now displayed at the British Museum yes. in London. Yes. So that's the Elgin marbles in yes. case in case anyone is yes. unfamiliar.
1: No, there there are there are lots of ways in which you could you could make the practical case as to, you know, where would it go, who would get it. And of course, part of the problem for us about reducing the the opposing side about, or the side that claims these objects should be repatriated too purely symbolic neglects to note the fact that britain is actively benefiting hugely materially in 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 terms of pounds and pence from the tourism that has generated from these objects being in london you know we already mentioned how expensive it is to to go to the to go to the tower uh, tower museum um, the the num- you know you don't technically have to pay to go to the British museum yes but part of the reason why many many foreigners come to visit london to see london as as tourists is the fact that the british museum is in london and
0: um, and the british museum presents itself to the world as the caretaker the steward of the world's treasures yes. as being not the owner, yes. but the guardian yes. of treasures from all over the yes. world. And, of course, they they have to gloss over yes. the many ways that these treasures were acquired. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's many, many individuals who are aware of and who tell this, these stories in a historically accurate way that um, we might find acceptable. Um, but it's it's not just the diamond it's not just the marbles and there was a whole system in place particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries but that continues continues to today about museums and the collection of objects and artifacts and the use of those objects and artifacts for the purposes of constructing historical and scientific narratives about the natural and social world that was very colonial and part of the justification for continued expansion of empire wasn't just economic it was also scientific it was about collecting knowledge it was about um, creating a substantial and significant scientific narrative of the world and how the world is and of course this included um you know to our shame of course the the bringing back of what what colonial officials called human specimens of bringing people back and displaying them in museums and exhibitions mm. and of course you know we we don't tend to do that anymore um but the objects and artifacts themselves have in many cases remained in the same mm the same exhibition spaces yeah. and museums and certainly yeah. in the hands of the same institutions yeah. that they were entrusted yeah. to in the the 19th and 20th centuries yeah. um this is the indiana jones style of empire yeah. it's collecting yeah. artifacts without a narrative of ownership in the same sense that if you find it it's yours yeah. um hence why william and kate can sit in front of the taj mahal and and Prince William can say, this place is of significance to my family because my mother announced her divorce to the world mm. here, which is so incongruous and weird mm. to me, but it is is perfectly logical yeah. um, to not just him, but to mm. mainstream media outlets.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the role of the museums in constructing colonial knowledge and constructing spaces through which knowledge can be named as such, you know, you can take this fact and, t- and, and call it knowledge with a capital K or science with a capital S or, or whatever. And the role of that in the colonial context specifically is really interesting. Um, it reminds me of Rudyard Kipling's turn of the century novel, Kim. Uh, for those of you who've read it, you will remember that Kim begins with the museum. So uh, Kim tells the story of uh, a young boy who is uh, European, half British, half Irish, uh, sort of. And Kim goes on a journey across India with a Tibetan Lama, a Buddhist Tibetan Lama, and uh, basically along that journey they they sort of discover India. It's a nation-building novel as well as a a coming-of-age novel. But when we first see the Lama, the Lama is standing in Lahore, outside Lahore Museum, which still exists, and it's the same building that Kipling is talking about. And he's hesitant. He doesn't. He does. He doesn't know what he should do. He doesn't know whether he's he's allowed to enter. And directly outside the museum, there is a cannon called the Zamzama, which still exists and is still outside the same museum. Uh, it's in the middle of a fairly busy road at the moment. Um, and Kim is is presented as sat astride the cannon because he's British and the British ruling, ruling rule over Punjab. And Kim has to reassure the Lama that he he can enter, and that there is that he is allowed to go in, and there is there is no danger there but there is just a sahib with a white beard who is the the curator and the curator is presented as this very knowledgeable very friendly very inquisitive very supportive person who's very respectful of india and indian culture and so on and so forth
0: speaking of popular representations of academics
1: yes well remembered (laughs) call back to one of our earlier episodes and one of the things that the the curator this white bearded man uh does, because he is so impressed with the Tibetan Lama, is that he gives him a pair of glasses, which is presented as clear and light and much easier to wear. And, of course, that is not not accidental. It's a very symbolic gesture of the, the white European, the British man, allowing, permitting Indians to see their own culture, see their own history through white European eyes.
0: This is a theme that's addressed by many subaltern studies scholars. I'm thinking of Rana Jit Guha, for example, um, who talk about the, the colonial narrative of allowing Indians to tell the story of themselves, that Indians didn't have a history until Europeans arrived. Yes. Um, and this is, you know, of course has been critiqued. What I think is quite interesting as well is the fact that that narrative in and of itself was told to white British people in order to tell them, look what we're giving to India, yes. in order to, to justify continuing the empire because yes. there was a lot of British opposition yes. to empire. People, you know, read about the Amritsar massacre and weren't yes. pleased about it. Yes. They weren't yes. impressed yes. necessarily. Yes. So there was a desire yes. to continue to tell this yes. story, both to Indians and to British audiences.
1: Yeah, and there's also there's also a, a wider imperial context as well, or sort of imperial context, because one of the things I've always thought, and I, I don't think as much as been, has been written about it as as there might be, is that the novel Kim, in many ways, is identical to the novel Huckleberry Finn. Yes, and Huckleberry, so if you, you know, it's a it's an ambiguously placed white boy, and an older man of colour going on a journey together and in the process finding the nation, inventing the nation. So when Huck and Jim go off on the raft uh, on their journey, they discover America. Yes. And of course, in the, in the process of nation-building, in the process of discovering the nation, in the process of imagining this space that will one day become India or will one day become America, that is a colonial act because you are silencing, defining, categorizing the people who, who've already been there.
0: And who've already been telling that story. Yes. Um, what's amazing, I mean, there's a, a British library project now digitizing lots of Indian texts to, you know, reinsert Indian history into yes. Indian history. Yes. Um, and it becomes very difficult when you have objects and artifacts like the Kohinoor diamond that become the arbiters or kind of magnets for different narratives that then get played out but of course the object itself can only be in one place at one time it can only be it can only do so much practical work and so it the arguments and debates over the diamond itself will never end up creating a solu- a practical solution for the diamond. The diamond uh, yes. will always be at the heart of the multiple narratives. Yes. Wherever it is.
1: And because I am who I am and because I'm I'm interested in what I'm interested in this makes me immediately think of Marx and uh Marx's idea of commodity fetishism which um Karl Marx not Groucho Marx <laughs> well-spotted. You know,
0: we've yes. got to make sure new listeners. Yes.
1: Um, Karl Marx in in uh, Capital Volume 1 talks about um, the process through which an object becomes a commodity. The process in which through which as a society we give value to, to an object, to an artifact, and it becomes something that can be bought and sold. And because Marx writes in the way he does uh for for a thinker who is as unapologetically materialist as he was he still disconcertingly uses various um fantastical language to describe describe these processes um and when he talks about commodity fetishism he he talks about the commodity as a religious object in other words in the discourse of religion Marx says we take an invention that is uh, an invention inside a human brain, and give it agency, give it autonomy, so it develops a power of its own. And he says that's what happens to a commodity. So you take an object, whether it's a a coat a or a house or or you know whatever you something that human beings have made, have produced. That object gets its own agency, gets its own autonomy. Can can enter into social relations with other human beings uh, and that process Marx identifies us or defines us as commodity fetishism, and I think that really applies here. the diamond has become a commodity, not just a commodity which can be bought or sold in in fact, it is a commodity which can't be bought and sold you know it's not for sale as we've learned as we've learned but it is a it is a commodity that can can create social relations, can enable social relations between individual human beings, between societies, between nations, between a nation and its past. All of these narratives are to do with diplomatic relations between Britain and India and to do with both British and Indian sense of their own past. It's all centred around that thing, that object that is a commodity.
0: It also serves to to continue and um, consolidate the geographical distinctions between India and Britain and it has managed to change over time. Of course, it has survived partition and it has survived independence and it continues, you know, it it got placed in the Queen Mother's crown and that is where it remains. Um, And so it it absorbs the the discourses of geography which is about um, the landscape and territory and the nation-state and the, the unified bounded nation-state, while also simultaneously raising questions about sovereignty and ownership, um, whose, which nation-state should own the diamond. And in doing so, it continues to justify India as a nation-state and Britain as a nation-state yes even while it unsettles our own feelings about the diamond itself
1: yes which is interesting because the the legal argument about what the the legal state of the di- the diamond is you know whether whether the treaty between britain in 1849 and a Sikh empire that has stopped, existed since 1849, pretty much. Yeah, uh, the
0: treaty that brought the diamond to Britain that brought the destroyed di- yes, the Sikh empire. Yes,
1: so the 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 argument that decides the viability, the legitimacy or otherwise, of that treaty between entities that no longer exist. You know, Britain in 1849 is not the same entity as Britain today in any any meaningful sense. Um, What... Many of the discourses about that treaty miss is that this is not a property in any any meaningful sense of the term, in the same way that you know Buckingham Palace is owned by the nation. I don't think. I think there is something there is something more uh complicated about that narrative because about that object, I mean, because it has within it extant imperial colonial relations which define the present as much as they define the past. Yes. It reminds me, you know, going back to where we started today, the the tour that William and and Kate are on reminds me a little bit of of an earlier tour that William was on um, which led to a rather funny meme which I think you spotted. (laughs) Um, Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, well
0: he was in... Wait, he was... He was in Africa, wasn't he? He was in Africa, yeah. And he was... I can't remember which country he was in, which is terrible.
1: Mm.
0: But it wasn't the Congo. But he was being carried by a group of people that were there to meet him, a group of locals who were there to meet him. And it looked exactly like an image from everyone's favorite Tintin story, when Tintin goes to the Congo and becomes a Belgian colonial official. Yes. Um, the most famously racist cartoon I think there is, I would say. Probably. Um and of course a meme put William and Tintin side by side. Yes. Um
1: Yes. And I guess that one of the one of the points about those memes and that there are other events which which violently bring forth the, the the, the nature of the colonial relationship that mostly lies hidden. So, you know, we could think about words Must Fall, which is um, another recent news item where a, a group of students and staff activists uh, in various parts of the world, but principally for the moment in, in the University of Oxford, have called for the removal of the statue of Cecil Rhodes, who uh, is another famously racist colonial um, businessman. Uh, profiteer who funded a huge number amount of scholarships that that helped promote research in the University of Oxford and is therefore therefore has a statue there which, you know, not surprisingly, students uh, from African backgrounds or students who have particular uh, anti colonial politics find offensive. So there's a, there's a campaign roads must fall which argues for the removal of. Of, the, of Cecil Rhodes' statue from the university campus. And, you know, we could, we could talk about the, the, the removal of the Confederate flag from various southern United States um, in the aftermath of particular uh, race-based attacks. And in all of these cases, whether we talk about the removal of the Confederates' flag, whether we talk about the removal of Cecil Rhodes' statue, whether we talk about the repatriation of the Elgin Marbles or the Kohino Diamond, the the response or a conservative response to all of this is a, a suspicion of the about rewriting history. In other words, the argument goes that history is messy, history is difficult, some history has been painful and people have been bad in historical moments. But we shouldn't erase all of that. We shouldn't erase all of the the colonial, racist, slavery, whichever uh, case you're focused on. We shouldn't erase those memories, but we should be able to talk about them. That's a conservative response to the demand for change. Except what that does is, in that argument, relegate all of these issues to the past. In other words, colonialism has ended, racism has ended, and therefore the material artifacts under question only ever have symbolic value. They're they're only important to the discussion because they have historical symbolic value and not absolute contemporary material value. In other words, a Confederate flag is used today by far-right groups to justify racism and violent racism. The Kohenu Diamond and the Elgin Marbles are an invaluable resource today that allows Britain to benefit hugely from tourism, and on and on and on. In other words, these are not just symbols. These these have actual material effect in the spaces they occupy in the present.
0: Yes, what I think is fascinating too about Roads Must Fall is the equating of the leaving up a statue in a flattering position with history. So you take the statue down and then everyone automatically forgets. If only it were so simple. Yes. If but, only trauma didn't work that. You know, it's it's
1: But of course that's not what it's about, right? What what it's about is that is the recognition or the self-recognition that is needed in order for a statue to be removed. If for for the University of Oxford to remove the statue. The University of Oxford needs to recognize its culpability in what happened. Which
0: changes fundamentally the way that the University of Oxford identifies itself. Yes. And by extension, returning the Elgin marbles or the Kohinoor diamond requires Britain to fundamentally change the way it understands itself, which... We go back to why William and Kate are running around India in the first place. It is because that process is is deeply painful, and very difficult.
1: Yes, and would cause written material loss in the present.
0: Yes, I think that's it. I think that's it for this week.
1: I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Let us know. Tweet at us. Tell us on Facebook.
0: Tell us anything we forgot.
1: And, uh, see you next week.
0: Bye! Bye!
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick.
1: And I have been Anindya Richardry.
0: You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz.
1: And me at Dr. Anindia R.
0: Our music was provided by The Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where